This episode is brought to you by Groupon. Save lots of money on stuff you already want to do through the sheer power of group economics. Now, welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from It's Getting Hot in Here, NPR, The Daily Show, Counterspin, the new video of The Story of Cap and Trade from Annie Leonard, Ring of Fire, The Onion Radio News, and La Show. Aziz is here to share his thoughts on the climate talks in Copenhagen and what he's doing to decrease his carbon footprint. Chinese foot binding? You know, I was at the Kyoto talks. I think I was there. Um, and, uh, you know, it was good because we were all talking, but they also had, like, you know, the thing where they cook the food on the table, like the steak and the shrimp, and um, and the guy's, like, doing tricks and, like, flipping stuff up in his hat and, like, tossing, you know, shrimp tails at people's faces and stuff. And, um just kept the mood light, and I hope they keep that in Copenhagen because the Kyoto one, that was good. It was in Myrtle Beach, uh, South Carolina, the Kyoto, um, at the Kyoto restaurant. So hopefully they keep that light mood in Copenhagen, and I wish them the best. Your career as a comedian has been blowing up lately. Is that having a negative effect on the environment, just getting so big like that? Um, yeah, it has because uh, as I do more acting and uh, writing and filming, I'm like making my carbon footprint uh, even bigger, and so that's why I'm I'm giving up my career to lower my carbon footprint. Um, I think everyone should just stop doing their jobs. That's the only way we can guarantee that everyone's carbon footprint is like a size six. That's like the ideal carbon footprint size, a size six. Lower your carbon footprint. Um, lower your carbon handprint. Some people don't realize, like, your hands leave a carbon handprint, so that needs to be kept low, too. Like, mine's, like, adhere. It needs to be, like, when I put my hand up against the wall, the handprint actually is not, it doesn't start up there. The handprint starts there, because my carbon handprint is so small. That's a, that's something you can work towards. We'll take the world together. We'll take them by the hand. Former Vice President Al Gore's new book is called Our Choice, A Plan to Solve the Climate Crisis. At the end of the book, Gore writes a hypothetical, optimistic history of an upcoming event. In December of 2009, as he describes it, all the nations of the world gathered in Copenhagen, Denmark, to negotiate a global treaty that many even then thought was impossible. Later it was strengthened. And in 2010, an idealistic new generation took the initiative and changed the political tone in nation after nation. Well, Al Gore joins us now from Philadelphia. Welcome back to the program. Well, thank you. Good to be back. And uh, let's begin by contrasting your hopeful reflection uh, from the future back on December 2009 with what's in the news every day, which is one warning after another that next month's Copenhagen conference will fail to achieve uh, any meaningful agreement on climate change. What are we missing? Well, I think that we are uh, on track uh, with somewhat lowered expectations to achieve, nonetheless, a binding political agreement. Much depends on the amount of progress that can be made in the Senate between now and the middle of uh, December, when the heads of delegations and heads of state will be in Copenhagen. But the consensus legislation now being prepared in the Senate does have a prospect of attracting 60 votes, and I think that President Obama will have a strengthened hand having already passed legislation in the House and having the clear prospect of legislation in the Senate and a binding regulation on the books from EPA this year requiring reductions in CO2, even if legislation were not to pass. Do you assume that President Obama will go to Copenhagen? to? Uh, to I hope that he that? will. Why? He what's, what's important about him going there? Well, the United States is still the acknowledged leader of the world. And we have the largest uh, economy in the world, and we're one of the two largest 
emitters of global warming pollution. And unless the United States plays its customary leadership role, it, it would be impossible for the world to resolve this crisis. But with the United States leading in a responsible way, we can. Your personal finances recently made the front page of the New York Times. Uh, you've been criticized for investing in companies that, uh, say, would bid on contracts in a cap-and-trade system. Uh, you stand accused of doing well by doing good. Uh, would, <laughs> w- would you benefit financially uh, from, say, the creation of a cap-and-trade system? Well, I, I've given away everything and more that's attributable to anything of that sort. The majority of my business career over the last nine years since I left public service has been focused on other areas, uh, Internet, information technology, media, and the like. But I have made some investments in the things that I believe in. If I were not to do so, I would be accused by these same people of being a hypocrite. Uh, I have donated all of that and more to the Alliance for Climate Protection, a nonprofit that focuses on raising awareness of the climate crisis and the solutions to the same. Now, you start our choice by addressing a very basic problem, which is population growth. Uh, and you, you've spoken and written about how population growth is uh, projected to stabilize as women gain more autonomy, more control over childbearing, uh, and uh, indeed uh, they stop having very large families. I, 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 I can't get over this contradiction in my mind, though, that doesn't that very process, this revolutionary change of going from big, typically rural families to much smaller, often urban families, uh, typically come from the very carbon-producing and emitting economic growth that you're trying to curtail? Well, no. Uh, The scientists used to think that. The social scientists did. But they discovered after decades of study that actually that was masking the true factors that are bringing about this change. The factors that are producing that change in every nation in the world are the education of girls, the empowerment of women to participate in decisions, the ability to manage the number of children and the spacing of children, and most importantly, higher child survival rates. Because when parents have a high level of confidence that their children will survive, the natural preference for smaller families takes hold. We've gone through that transition in the United States, Western Europe, Japan, but the developing countries are now well along that journey. But I was thinking, for example, of... uh a couple I met in uh, Chengdu in Sichuan province in China last year. These are no incidental players in the entire question of, of climate change. Uh, they're moving into a modern uh, urban two-bedroom apartment with all the modern appliances. They'll have only one kid as it's, it's national policy. But I couldn't get over the thought that they'll probably consume more and have a bigger carbon footprint than a dozen rural Chinese rice farmers. Uh, There's so much more engaged in the, in, in the developed economy now. Well, uh, that is sometimes the case, but in developed uh, countries and elsewhere, in some many other places, actually an urban lifestyle can be much more energy efficient. But it depends upon the technologies we use. It depends upon the design of our cities. By shifting toward electric cars and efficient and enjoyable mass transit uh, and much more energy efficient appliances and equipment, we can squeeze a huge percentage of the energy we think we're using now but is actually wasted out of that waste category and improve our standard of living uh, as we reduce the global warming pollution and the wasted energy. I'm reminded of uh, when, uh, when we spoke on this program, when you wrote Earth in the Balance, which must have been, I, I assume, 1990. Uh, January of 1992, that's right. And I think back on what has happened since. Uh, the global environmental movement has grown phenomenally. Public consciousness has grown incredibly. But uh, apart from our arresting ozone depletion, we don't seem to have put a dent in global warming. Uh, we don't seem to have actually moved forward during the very time that millions and millions more people have taken on board uh, an ideal of environmental action. Well, we have made some progress, but the the burning of fossil fuels and the rapid deforestation underway uh, in in many countries, particularly tropical countries, has moved ahead much faster. We're now at the point where we have to make a choice, hence the title, our choice, Mm -hmm. in a determined way 
shift to renewable sources of energy, much higher levels of efficiency, and sustainable forestry and sustainable agriculture. In writing this book over the last three and a half years, I came to the conclusion that we have all the tools we need to solve three or four climate crises, and we only have to solve one, but we have to choose to do it. Hey, hey, did you ever think there might be another way to just feel better, just feel better about today? Oh, no, if you never want to have to turn and go away, you might feel better, might feel better if you stay. Plan to solve the climate crisis. Please welcome back to the program, Al Gore. Hey, friends. Sit. Thank you. Sit. All right, sir. This book, Our Choice, is the uh, uh, follow-up to an inconvenient truth. Correct. May I say what I believe the problem to be? This is the, here's the problem. All right. The whole program. Yeah. You have the science on your side. You have a, a well-thought-out uh, argument concerning uh, climate change and, and uh, the earth warming and the effects that it will have and the things we must do as a society to change it. But every January, it still gets cold. <laughs> so the problem is, in people's minds, they're thinking to myself, should I believe this Al Gore or my rock-hard nipples? <laughs> Your move, sir. I think. Yeah, I think you've put your finger on the basic problem. Well, no. literally. Uh, <laughs> how do you? Because I uh, uh, I took this course uh, over the weekend, read through the uh, the book, learned an awful lot. Good. Still don't know what to do. Uh. <laughs> what what is what is the difficulty of, of gaining traction with this? Well, it's a hard problem to solve because burning coal and oil and other carbon-based fuels have uh, become a mainstay of the economy. So it's, it's hard to switch to renewable energy and more efficiency. We actually have all the tools we need to solve this. The only thing missing is political will. Uh, I entitled the book Our Choice because we really have to make a, a choice here in this country and around the world to make the changes the scientists say are necessary to to safeguard the future of human civilization and it sounds you know it sounds like such a big problem because it is yeah. and we're, we're not accustomed to dealing with problems that big i think there is a disconnect between the urgency with which the problem is presented and then the idea of the solutions a problem of that urgency typically requires uh, your Bruce Willis, your Steve Buscemi, to get on a rocket ship and try and put a nuclear warhead into an asteroid. Because, I mean, I'll read you. This is just not do, but this is the first page of the book. Yeah. I'm offering you the choice of life or death. You can choose either blessings or curses. It ain't Leviticus, but it is Deuteronomy. So when you read that, you expect to turn the page and go, you're on fire! You, you know, is it... A, has the, the urgency of the language taken away from the message of the solutions? Well, that, that could be, there could be something to that, but the urgency of the problem itself really is that dire. The, the global warming pollution is building up so rapidly because we're putting 90 million tons of it into the atmosphere every single day, and the scientists have long been warning of the consequences that are now beginning to unfold, the deeper droughts, rising sea levels, 
the entire north polar ice cap is beginning to melt before our eyes now. 40% of it is completely gone in summer already. I'm familiar with the destruction of our world. Yeah. <laughs> but but, but that's, that's my point. Even if you are, as I am, someone who believes the science just because uh, if I see something in print, it must be true. But uh, I, I believe, okay, the, the world is warming. Surely human activity must have an impact on the world. Yeah. There's six billion of us, and, you know, yeah. Many of us live in paved areas, so of <laughs> yeah. course, yeah. but it seems like we won't change, you know, we didn't switch from horses till we got cars. I almost feel like when you say we have all these different choices we could do, just give us one. Just say, we're, t we're switching to geothermal and we're doing it tomorrow and yeah. here's how we're doing it. Yeah. I, I think it gets very... Confusing. We were told ethanol was the answer. It turns out that's worse for the environment. Yeah, but the, the new forms uh, of ethanol that they're coming up with now actually are not bad for the environment, and, and we can switch to, to the new kinds that will be much better. So, but let's take solar energy just for starters. There's, mm -hmm. there, more sunlight falls on the surface of the earth in one hour than is necessary to provide the energy for the entire world for a full year. And they're, and they're getting a lot better at building the solar panels that convert that sunlight into electricity. But a lot of it in our country, for example, is in the southwest and the desert areas. So in order to get it to where it's needed, we need to have a super grid, something that Democrats and Republicans basically agree on because the current... So we're building a super grid. Well, we've started to do it, yes. And the current grid costs us $200 billion a current year. Current grid's no good. It's not no a good grid. Good. We need a super grid. Uh, there you go. <laughs> I need a grid that can fly and has lasers yeah, yeah, that shoot out of its eyes. <laughs> the, 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 the thing is, you know, there's always unintended consequences of everything that we do. And you're fighting not just the Industrial Revolution Age, you're fighting... All the years of human progress, the, the, the one thing that brought humankind out of the darkness was burning things. Yeah. We rubbed two sticks together and suddenly we could eat cooked food and make more things. Like, yeah. it's, it's, it is a much more fundamental shift than I think environmentalists realize. It's not just about sorting plastic and paper. It's this idea that the life that humans have carved out was created through a certain thing of burning things we found. Yeah. And now you're saying... <laughs> But let's do it a different way. But nobody's given us that thing. You have to make it easy for us. Yeah. We're tired. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're, we're working hard. Like, it, 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 it's very frustrating uh, to me to keep hearing about this and not seeing well, hover the cars. The difference, from, the difference from ages ago is that in the last 100 years, we've quadrupled the number of people on the planet. And the technologies that we use now are a million times more powerful than the ones our grandparents uh, used. And the sum total of that is that we're having a much bigger impact on a global scale. And the whole message of this book is the substitutes are available. Just take efficiency uh, for starters. Mm -hmm. We waste most of the energy that we think we're using because the coal-fired generating plants and the mm -hmm. internal combustion engine, just to take those two examples, are 100 years old and more, and they're horribly inefficient. And there are new technologies that don't waste the kind of energy that we waste Are they now. cheaper? Yeah, some of them are, yes, particularly. So why not just partner up with whoever's giving it to us now, partner up with Exxon and say, okay, you own the, the oil and gas now, you can own the, the new thing. G well, give it all to them if, it, if it's so important. Well, the problem is that uh, some very powerful corporations do make their money from the old ways of burning coal That's and what oil. That's who? Give, give, give me a name. Uh, you mentioned one, ExxonMobil. So give them say, you've got the solar thing. Yeah, well, You're done. Half the sun, it's yeah, yours. Yeah. <laughs> you got it. Why are we... I, I, because if we switch over to renewable energy, then all the money they're making from the old, dirty fuels, they're not going to make as much anymore. And that's why they're fighting against it. But they'll make... All right. And it's this old lady, like, okay, so we stop... But, but a lot of the, here, here's part right. of the answer. A lot of these new technologies are not ones that are naturally controlled by one or a few big corporations. Well, like they solar will be. <laughs> well, but solar panels, the sun shines everywhere. And you can put solar panels on the roofs of homes and buildings, and it's widely dispersed. Same with wind power. Same with a lot of the, the new approaches. And so the, the older companies that, you know, establish control of the old patterns, they don't want to change. I know they don't want to change, but people, they, you know, the, the, the horse and buggy carriages didn't want carriages to go away either. But somebody came up with cars, and we were like, holy 
those are fast. Well, and that was it. Well, Why now, can't they just come up with the, 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 the thing? Well, now we have electric cars. And with renewable electricity, the super grid, and electric cars, but we can ship But nobody's buying away. those except out of guilt. Nobody no, well, wants, you know. In, in almost every automaking country in the world, there is a race to, to dominate the market for electric cars that they all think is, is coming soon. We're all going to die, aren't we? Uh, no. no if tell we, me who's going to die and who's not. Tell me, tell we, me who's going to die and who's not. Do you know? I didn't get to the very end of the book. Yeah, well, we... we Am I okay? My apartment's like 10 floors up. I'm fine. Yeah. If we make the right choice, we're all going to make it. Yeah, that'll happen. Uh. If we make it through December Everything's going to be all right, I know It's the coldest time of winter And I shiver when I see the falling snow If we make it through December Got plans to be in a warmer town come summertime Maybe even California If we make it through December, we'll be fine and finally, and former Vice President Al Gore is on the cover of the November 9th Newsweek to coincide with the release of his new book, Our Choice, A Plan to Solve the Climate Crisis. The piece on the inside is a mostly favorable take on Gore's work, though reporter Sharon Bagley couldn't resist throwing in a little dig at Gore's wonkiness. Quote, to anyone with bad memories of how Gore's fact-filled debate performances against George W. Bush in 2000 failed to connect with the voters, it may come as no surprise that Our Choice has a graphic on how a wind turbine works and a long section that begins, conventional hydrothermal plants are built according to one of three different designs. The steam can be taken directly through the turbine and then recondensed, close quote. Imagine that, a description of wind power with a graphic in a book about green energy. Once a hopeless wonk, always a hopeless wonk. As to our memories of those 2000 debates, maybe Begley meant to type reporters instead of voters. The public reaction to the first Bush-Gore debate was pretty well studied, and the polls showed that most people thought Gore won. In any event, it's hard to believe reporters found anyone who seriously called for fewer facts in debates, though imagining such an audience must make a journalist's job much easier to do. This episode is brought to you by Groupon, and I promise that you're going to be thanking me for telling you about it. Groupon uses the economic buying power of large groups of people as leverage to get huge discounts, usually between 50 to 80% off great services, restaurants, activities, and more in 45 major cities across the U.S. You only buy what you want, and you pay nothing for the privilege of being alerted of new great deals every day. Support this podcast by visiting bestoftheleft.com and clicking the Groupon button so they know I sent you. See how it works, reap the benefits, and thank me later. Funny high distance and time. I am so glad that the world is finally getting together to stop climate change. When I first heard that our leaders were meeting to talk about solutions, I breathed a huge sigh of relief. Didn't you? Then I said, wait a minute, what exactly are they planning to do about this problem? So I looked into it, and I got to tell you, not all the solutions they're working on are what I'd call solutions. In fact, the leading solution, known as cap and trade or emissions trading, is actually a huge problem. Now, I know this is the last thing you want to hear, but the future of our planet is at stake, so we got to take the time to understand what's going on here. Okay, meet the guys at the heart of this so-called solution. They include the guys from Enron, who designed energy trading. And the Wall Street financiers like Goldman Sachs, who gave us the subprime mortgage crisis, their job is to develop brand new markets. They stake their claims, and then when everyone and their grandmother wants in, they make off with huge amounts of money as the market becomes a giant bubble and bursts. Well, their latest bubble just burst, and now they have a new idea for a market, trading carbon pollution. They're about to develop a new $3 trillion bubble. But when this one bursts, it won't just take down our stock portfolios. It could take down everything. So how does cap-and-trade work? Well, pretty much all serious scientists agree that we need to reduce the amount of carbon in the atmosphere to 350 parts per million if we want to avoid climate disaster. 
In the U.S., that means reducing our emissions by 80%, maybe even more, by 2050. 80%. Now, the problem is that most of our global economy runs on burning fossil fuels, which releases carbon. The factories that make all our stuff, the ships and trucks that carry it around the world, our cars and buildings and appliances, and just about everything. So how are we going to reduce carbon 80% and not go back to living like Little House on the Prairie? Well, these cap-and-trade guys are saying that a new carbon stock market is the best way to get it done. The first step would be getting governments around the world to agree on a yearly limit on carbon emissions. That's the cap. I think that part is great. So how do they want to ensure that carbon emissions stay under the cap? Well, governments would distribute a certain amount of permits to pollute. Every year there would be fewer and fewer permits as we follow the cap to our goal. Innovative companies will get on board building clean alternatives and getting more efficient. As permits get scarcer, they would also become more valuable. So naturally, companies who have extra will want to sell them to companies who need them. That's where the trading comes in. The logic is that as long as we stay under the cap, it doesn't matter who pollutes and who innovates. We'll meet our climate deadline, avoiding catastrophe, and oh yeah, these guys take their fee as they broker this multi-trillion dollar carbon racket, I mean market. Save the planet, get rich, what's not to like? Some of my friends who really care about our future support cap and trade. A lot of environmental groups that I respect do too. They know it's not a perfect solution and they don't love the idea of turning our planet's future over to these guys, but they think it's an important first step and that it's better than nothing. I'm not so sure. And I'm not the only one. A growing movement of scientists, students, farmers, and forward-thinking business people are all saying, wait a minute. In fact, even the economists who invented the cap-and-trade system to deal with simpler problems like fertilizer pollution and sulfur dioxide, they say cap-and-trade will never work for climate change. Here's why I think they're right. When it comes to any kind of financial scam, like subprime mortgages or Bernie Madoff's pyramid scheme, the devil is always in the details, and there are a lot of devils in the details of the cap-and-trade proposals on the table. Devil number one is known as free permits, which is why some people call this system cap and giveaway. In this scheme, industrial polluters will get the vast majority of these valuable permits for free. Free! The more they've been polluting, the more they get. It's like we're thanking them for creating this problem in the first place. In Europe, they tried a cap and giveaway system. The price of permits bounced around like crazy. Energy costs jumped for consumers. And guess what? Carbon emissions actually went up. The only part that did work was that the polluters made billions of dollars in extra profits. MIT economists say the same thing would likely happen here in the U.S. Those billions come from our pockets. A real solution would put that money to work stopping climate change. Instead of just giving permits away to polluters, we could sell them and use the money to build a clean energy economy or give citizens a dividend to help pay for higher fuel prices while we transition to that clean energy economy or share it with those most harmed by climate change. Some people call this paying our ecological debt. Since we in the richest countries released the most carbon for centuries and lived a pretty comfy lifestyle in the process, don't we have a responsibility to help those most harmed? It's like we had a big party, didn't invite our neighbors, and then stuck them with the cleanup bill. It's just not cool. Did you know that in the next century, because of the changing climate, whole island nations could end up underwater? And the UN says 9 out of 10 African farmers could lose their ability to grow food. Now, wouldn't a real solution benefit these people instead of just the polluters? <laughs> Devil number two is called offsetting. Offset permits are created when a company supposedly removes or reduces carbon. They then get a permit which can be sold to a polluter who wants permission to emit more carbon. In theory, one activity offsets the other. The danger with offsets is it's very hard to guarantee that real carbon is being removed to create the permit, yet these permits are worth real money. This creates a very dangerous incentive to create false offsets, to cheat. Now, in some cases, cheating isn't the end of the world. But in this case, it is. And already there's a lot of cheating going on. Like in Indonesia, Sinar Mass Corporation cut down indigenous forests, causing major ecological and cultural destruction. Then they took the wasteland they created and planted palm oil trees. Guess what they can get for it? Yep, offset permits. Carbon out? No. Carbon in? You bet. Companies can even earn offsets for not doing anything at all. Like operators of a polluting factory can claim they were planning to expand 200%, but reduce the plans to expand only 100%. For that meaningless claim, they get offset permits. Permits that they can sell to someone else to make more pollution. That is so stupid. 
The list of scams go on and on, and many of the worst ones happen in the so-called third world, where big business does whatever it wants to whomever it wants. And with lax standards and regulations on offsets, they can get permits for just about anything. Devils 1 and 2, cabin giveaway and offsetting, make the system unfair and ineffective. But the last devil, which I call distraction, makes it downright dangerous. You see, there are real solutions out there. But cap and trade with its loopholes and promises of riches have made many people forget all about them. We're not even close to a global agreement on a carbon cap to begin with. And duh, that is the whole point of cap and trade. But instead of hammering out a fair and strong deal, we're putting the cart before the horse and rushing off to trade schemes and offsets. With all the bogus offset projects, huge giveaways to polluters, and the failure to address the injustices of climate change, do you think the third world will get on board with the global cap? I doubt it. If a cap-and-trade proposal is stopping us from actually capping carbon, it's a dangerous distraction. We don't need to let these guys design the solution. We, us, our governments, we can make laws and do it ourselves. In my country, we already have a law, the Clean Air Act, that confirms that carbon is a pollutant which our environmental agency is allowed to cap. So what are we waiting for? Go, EPA, go, cap that carbon. Instead, a U.S. cap-and-trade law proposed in 2009 guts the Clean Air Act, leaving it to the market to fix the problem. If a cap-and-trade proposal weakens our ability to make strong laws, it's a distraction. Concerned citizens around the world need to speak out and demand that we redesign our economies away from fossil fuels. But cap and trade makes citizens think everything will be okay if we just drive a little less, change our light bulbs, and let these guys do the rest. If cap and trade creates a false sense of progress, it's a dangerous distraction. These cap and trade proposals are mostly about protecting business as usual. Right now, the U.S. subsidizes fossil fuels at more than twice the rate of renewables. What? We shouldn't be subsidizing fossil fuels at all. These guys don't seem to realize that the simplest way to keep carbon out of the atmosphere is to leave it safely in the ground. U.S. Congressman Rick Boucher, a well-known friend of the coal industry, voted for cap-and-trade. He said it strengthens the case for utilities to continue to use coal. No law that encourages coal use can stop climate change, period. Solid caps, strong laws, citizen action, and carbon fees to pay off ecological debt and create a clean energy economy. That's how we can save our future. The next time someone tells you that cabin trade is the best we're going to get, don't believe them. Better yet, talk to them. They probably want a future safe from climate change, too. Maybe they've just forgotten that you can only compromise to a point before a solution isn't really a solution. Look, I know we'd love to sacrifice nothing, save the planet, and get rich doing it. But get real. This is the biggest crisis humanity has ever faced. We can't solve it with the mindset, their mindset, that got us into this mess. We need something new. It won't be easy, but it's time we dream bigger. It's time to design a climate solution that will really work. chance to save the world. I mean, that's kind of the way this whole United Nations summit has been sold. I don't think it's hyperbole, do you? I don't. Uh, this, this is an extraordinarily important gathering, and um, yeah, some hyperbole has been used to, to try to uh, send that message, but, but I think it's in line. I mean, you have the president of the Maldives um, so desperate that he sta staged an underwater cabinet meeting uh, to try <laughs> to right. focus the world's attention on what happens if you don't do anything about climate change. And we haven't really been doing anything about climate change. And, you know, he's also said that, that Copenhagen is, is, is turning out to look like a suicide pact. So, you know, it does require some hyperbole to, to get people to 
focus their attention on the importance of this gathering. Well, what's at stake here? In, in a sense, uh, what you describe in climate rage is you describe uh, its reparations. I mean, it's the, the have-nots saying to the haves, look, you've created this climate debt over all of these years. You've You've basically, you know, destroyed our climate, and now you want us to pay for it. No, you should pay for it. Isn't that kind yeah. of the 10,000-foot of it? Well, and that, that's, the, that's the gist of the piece that I wrote um, for Rolling Stone, and it is, a, I think, a hugely important part of these negotiations that has not received nearly as much attention as it, as it should have received in the United States in the, in, in the media here, um, although it's received more attention in Europe. Um, and, and essentially, what, we're not, not going to be able to ignore this argument for much longer, mm-hmm. and that's why I wanted to write, write this piece, because you know, well time yeah. we, um, we talk about this in the, in, in, in the countries that have created the, the crisis. So the gist of the argument is climate change is here. Uh, it's not, we're not talking about some apocalyptic scenario down the road. In many parts of the world, people are already living the disastrous results of climate change. We can see it right now in the Philippines with a series of anomalous cyclones that have just devastated the region. We see it in eastern Africa right now with drought, with anomalous droughts. Um, so we're not talking about speculating about the future. And I think there is this terrible irony. It's like some kind of a cruel joke that if you look at, imagine two maps next to each other. The first map is depicting where the emissions came from that created the climate crisis, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, that map would, would, would be um, bright red in, in, in North America, in, in Europe, and in all the G8 countries, because there's a direct relationship between wealth and, the, and, and, and emissions and, 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 and industrialization. So we created the climate crisis. 20% of the world's population emitted 75% of the emissions that created the crisis, the climate mm-hmm. crisis. Now imagine another map. That map shows who's living the effects of climate change, where we're feeling the effects uh, first and worst. And that map is the, the mirror opposite. It's sub-Saharan Africa. It's Asia. It's, it's the countries, the poorest countries in the world that contributed least to the creation of the crisis are already living the effects of climate change. So, yes, they're turning around and saying to us, to the rich countries, you owe us a debt. And they're saying this, the, the response to climate change should be based on the principle the polluter pays. We mm. created this crisis. We're the polluters. And we have to help these countries to adapt to an increasingly hostile climate. A, and B, to leapfrog over dirty energy and move to cleaner but more expensive technologies. Okay, so, so this isn't, uh, you know, the advantage you have at, at this point is you have people like Justin Lin. He's a chief economist of the World Bank. He puts the equation bluntly. He says, just as you say, about 75 to 80 percent of the damage that's mm-hmm. been caused by global warming has been yeah. caused by these, these have nations. And, and the real problem is the people that have most, been most affected have very little resources to fight back. So the whole debt notion is, well, let's, you know, let's let's go in and try to even this game by saying, look, the haves have to come back in and do something about it. Now, let me ask you this. Where, where do you where do we need to get the number I've heard is, you know, you have to get uh, uh, as far as parts per million with greenhouse gas, you get 250 parts per million, something in that 350 range. 350 is the number that the the, the um, organization started by Bill McKibben, 350.org. Right, right, okay. Um, has said, um, the, 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 there's a, basically the range is between 450 or 350. Okay. Don't say 250 because then we'll really. No, no. I actually, I, I I interviewed him a few weeks ago, but you, when you do so many interviews, you lose track of numbers like no, that. No, I know, but he's made it very easy for us by 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 make calling his organization 350.org. I won't won't take him off the track. Okay, so so what is your, what's your sense of optimism? We're we're fighting a recession. Everything is focused in the U.S. on the economy. Uh, The economy is burning down. All this attention has really been taken away from what's happening with this upcoming uh, United Nations meeting, hasn't it? Yeah, and it's, you know, it's not just this issue. We're seeing foreign aid uh, drop. Um, In general, the economic crisis has made people more parochial, more, more inward-looking. But let, we can't forget um, that, the, that the financial crisis uh, is also global. 
uh, and I hate to <laughs> say it, but you know the United States is pretty much also responsible right. for that. Well, so, yeah. You know, we... These these countries, these African countries and Asian countries and Latin American countries, that are that are on the front lines of the climate crisis because glaciers are melting because of extreme storms, because of extreme droughts. Um, they are also dealing with the, the, the effects of the financial crisis. So the idea that we, we don't have to deal with that because we're in some trouble here, it's, it's, it's not a, a rational argument. It's not a moral argument. It's not an argument that's going to stand up. Uh, and I think, you know, what I'm trying to prepare people for is that we're going to see a different kind of environmental movement in, in, in Copenhagen, and it's angrier. I mean, that's why we called, called the peace climate rage. You know, this isn't, you know, the green, fuzzy, uh, crunchy environmental movement of the past. This is a, a movement that is about people, not less about polar bears and more about people, mm-hmm. um, and that is really looking at climate change as a kind of a slow war that has been waged by the rich against the poor. of transportation to add earth-friendly walking lanes to highways. It's the Onion Radio News. This is Doyle Redland reporting. Your commute could become a little greener now that the DOT has announced a huge construction project to add walking lanes to every major U.S. thoroughfare. Transportation spokesman Don Lapie says the new highway feature will reduce carbon emissions by 30,000 tons a year if citizens will embrace the new additions. I know we all know there's those types of people that will use anything green, but but if this is going to be a success, we need some good, hard-working American folks to walk on the highways. accommodate millions of new pedestrians, the government will build over 280,000 new rest areas. Put one foot in front of the other, stepping into the here and now. I'm not sure just where I'm going, but I will get there anyhow. I follow my nose to where I stand My heart's still strong and I know I'll make it I Sit right down in the promised land Sister, come and walk beside me Until our pathways do divide Nothing much but love to give you Even less hell I Naomi, you know, some of the rage that you're talking about before the break uh, really has to, it has to originate even with companies like, uh, even with countries like China and India. Yeah. Uh, you know, here they have now become part of the problem. They're spewing large amounts of carbon dioxide. Yeah. And, but they're saying, well, you know, we're, we're really not responsible for the problem because we just got started. You have 200 years of cumulative problems that the Western nations and the haves have, have, have put into this problem. And it, it's kind of a tough argument to, you know, to, to, to face because it's kind of the truth, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's got that truth problem. Um, but, but, but it's not as bad as all that because actually we've seen a real uh, willingness from the big developing country polluters, right? So not not every developing country is part of the problem. The fact of the matter is that most countries are too poor to actually have emissions that um, that, that 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 are large enough uh, to contribute to the problem. So we're talking about India, we're talking about China, we're talking about Brazil and Mexico and South Africa. Those are the major uh, uh, large developing countries that 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 are now emitting at a level that. that they have to be part of the solution. What these countries are all saying now is we do want to be part of the solution, but we insist uh, that, that the United States has to lead, has to make deep cuts 
at the same time as we make these deep cuts ourselves. And already, I mean, we've seen a real change uh, from China, and I've got a lot of problems with the Chinese government uh, on many, many issues. But um, we have really seen a change uh, in the past couple of years that the stimulus um, bill that China introduced in the midst of the economic crisis had a lot more on green energy than than the U.S. bill. Um, India has also been taking all kinds of, of, of measures, and they've indicated that they're willing to take more, but only if they see serious emission cuts from the United States. So the real problem is not these countries. It's the fact that the United States Senate and House bill have both – uh, um, are, they're both talking about levels of, of emission cuts that are really laughable. They are really minuscule or measly in, in, in the, the word chosen by the, the Chinese negotiator, and that's really what's setting us back. You know, We're actually in a good position now because you have this attitude coming from China and India, South Africa and Brazil of, okay, let's all do this together. Right. But, no, yeah. we're not going to get you out of it. That, that's what they're saying. It's, 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 it's not a kumbaya attitude. <laughs> it is, look, we're mad as hell. We want a solution, but we're not going to do it alone. Look, you know, to use that phrase because that, that's actually what I was going to lead with it. Anyone Expecting a kumbaya out of Copenhagen is going to be sorely disappointed. Yeah, well, that's good. That's actually good. Well, look, let me ask you this. The Heritage Foundations, all the right-wing think tanks, the only way they can carry on a discussion about something as important as something like climate change is to talk about money. I mean, human lives don't really matter. They don't factor into the equation. They don't talk about the fact that islands are disappearing, that people are being wiped out with tsunamis. That, that They don't talk about that human factor. Mm-hmm. But even But when you go to the human when you go to that economic factor you've got the world bank yeah. and and they put the cost to developing countries that they're going to face from climate change things like crops being destroyed yeah. and droughts and floods and malaria on, on and on as high as a hundred billion a year mm-hmm. that is a i mean it's a star- startling number if you are pango pango and you're saying look my island's getting ready to disappear you're going to be militant aren't you i mean you have to be you have to be, and, and that's why we're seeing these increasingly sort of desperate ploys like the underwater cabinet meeting from the right. Maldives. And, 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 and even for phrases, words, like the, the president of Bangladesh described climate change as a slow form of genocide. He's saying ways, entire ways of life and cultures are being wiped out, uh, and we're, act, we're acting as if it isn't happening. Um, but, you know, I think one of the things that, that's, I think, exciting about this this framing of it as as a debt is that the countries are not coming to Copenhagen. Poor countries are not coming to Copenhagen begging. I mean, that that's what they're rejecting. They're rejecting this idea that they're coming a cap in hand and saying, "Please, please, we need more money." You know, we're a basket case. It it, it it's a much more moral position. Mm. And they're saying uh, that actually the U.S., as well as 191 other countries, signed uh, the U.N. Climate Convention in 1992, which actually accepted that the developing country, the developed countries, the G8 countries, the rich world, um, bear the responsibility for climate change. Naomi, one pro- already agreed to this. Yeah, one problem that you have, and we we all know this. I mean, I I try the most complex cases dealing with pharmaceuticals, defective, mm-hmm. all, all types of cases like that. And we, you've heard the term science can't know. Science can't know is when the other side is trying to convince somebody who, who, who simply can't process the material. They, they hear it. They yeah. say, well, gee, it sounds awful. I can't get my head around it. It's too scary. Rather than me ad- adopting it and agreeing to it, I'm going to say it doesn't exist because science can't really know. Mm-hmm. Now, the right in the United States has done an, a marvelous job, I mean, incredible job, selling that to the point to where you actually have the American population numbers that are decreasing as far as people who believe that climate change is real. They've been very successful. Really? Exxon's pumped tons of money into it. you got the Glenn Becks, the Rush Limbaugh's, the the whole right-wing noise factor that is convincing the American public that science can't know. So that's what Obama's up against going into this, isn't he? You know, it's a huge problem, and it's related to where we started, which is this twisted irony that, that the effects of climate change are being felt exactly in the places that are least responsible. The flip side of that is that some of the countries that are most responsible, like the United States and Canada, not only aren't feeling the effects of climate change as intensely, but we are actually reaping some benefits. Longer growing seasons, 
uh, yeah, there are some real benefits from, from, from some of the climate change modeling, and we're already seeing some of it right now. So it's easier to, de- to deny that climate change is happening uh, here, and much easier than it is to deny it in Ethiopia at the moment or to deny it in the Philippines at the moment or in India. I mean, because people are living it. You can't deny what you're, what you're living. And I remember being on the Gulf Coast, um, at, at, right after Hurricane Katrina, being in very red areas in Mississippi, you know, mm. in Biloxi, and hearing you know, diehard Republicans say to me, you know, this climate change thing, I think it's real. Uh, well, I, you know, never heard of water reaching this far Naomi, out, right? let, me, let me give you the bad news. I live down here. They have forgotten that. I can I tell know. you. It, it, is it, it has come. You remember that, right? I of mean, course. I was, I was 100 miles from where it happened. Yeah. So, so the, the point being is the, it, it's, it's almost like Obama. Obama at this point isn't armed with the kind of thing he needs to be armed with. Look, you've got the Chamber of Commerce yeah. out there saying kind of what you just, you know, of course they're bastardizing what they're saying. The Arctic's melting. Great. Now we're going to have better shipping lanes. You know, cold weather is bad for us anyway. Isn't this wonderful? We're all going to be healthier now because we have a warmer climate. And you have people that are so desperate to, to, to grab onto something that sounds positive, that they can say, this doesn't scare the hell out of me, to grab onto those things and adopt them as their, uh, as their ideology. Well, I think there's two things, you know, just to end maybe on a more positive note, that, that um, there, there, first of all, I don't think that Obama has spent much political capital bringing people along on climate change. He's been focused on health care. He's been focused on the financial crisis. This has not been top priority, and we're seeing the effects of that. I think that the responsibility for those numbers of people starting to think that maybe climate change isn't urgent, um, I think that has to be shared with the Democrats. I mean, it takes – this is an argument. You have to be out there fighting. You have to be out there convincing people. But I think it's a winnable argument, and I think part – I think climate debt is a winnable argument because when you talk about these huge numbers and the billions of dollars that, that are required – uh, to to help countries adapt to climate change, but also to leapfrog over the the the, the, the dirty energies like coal and oil to solar, wind, um, you know, more sustainable uh, uh, forms of energy. That's something we all benefit from. So that isn't uh, just charity. That isn't just helping people. That is how, that that is that is a kind of help that clearly and and demonstrably. Uh, uh, benefits the entire planet. Um, so I think that, you know, personally, I have a lot of faith in Obama's rhetorical skills. I think he can bring this country along um, to all kinds of places when he sets his mind to it. I got my mind on you. I got my mind By a warming climate, daily record high temperatures occurred twice as often as record lows over the last decade across the continental United States, according to new research. The ratio of record highs to lows is likely to increase dramatically in coming decades if emissions of greenhouse gases continue to climb. Also, the ratio to high-low records. High-lows records. Screwed up that joke. Climate change is making itself felt in terms of day-to-day weather in the United States, says the lead author and a senior scientist at the National Center for Atmospheric Research, NCAR. The way these records are being broken show how our climate is already shifting. This would answer those who say, well, you know, there's still cold weather. Yes, there is. If temperatures were not warming, the number of record daily highs and lows being set each year would be approximately even. Instead, from January 1, 2000 to September 30, 2009, the U.S. had 291,000 record highs and 142,000 record lows. The country experienced unusually mild winter weather and intense summer heat waves. The decade's warming was more pronounced in the western United States, pronounced western United States, where the ratio was more than 2 to 1 than the eastern United States. 
The study found that the two-to-one ratio across the country as a whole could be contributed more to a comparatively small number of record lows than to a large number of record highs. This indicates much of the nation's warming is occurring at night when we can't see it and when temperatures are dipping less often to record lows or to high lows records. See, I tried it again. Satellite observations and a state-of-the-art regional atmospheric model have independently confirmed that the Greenland ice sheet is losing mass at an accelerating rate, according to a new study in Science magazine. The mass loss is equally distributed between increased iceberg production, driven by acceleration of Greenland's fast-flowing outlet glaciers, and increased meltwater production at the ice sheet surface. Professor Jonathan Bamber Author of the paper said it's clear from these results that mass loss from Greenland has been accelerating since the late 1990s, and the underlying causes suggest this trend is likely to continue in the near future. The Greenland ice sheet contains enough water to cause a global sea level rise of 7 meters. Wait a minute. I can figure that out. No, I'm not going to take the time. I have the thing in my pocket to do it, but I wasn't set up for this. Since two, I haven't been set up for Since 2000, the ice sheet has lost about 1,500 And I'm stopping at that because, oh, GT, uh, the mass of one cubic kilometer of water. So it's lost 1,500 of those, representing on average a global sea level rise of about half a millimeter a year or five millimeters since 2000. At the same time, the surface melting started to increase around 1996. Snowfall on the ice sheet also increased at approximately the same rate, masking the losses for nearly a decade and a significant part of the additional melt water refroze in the cold snowpack. Without these moderating effects, post-1996 Greenland mass loss would have been double the amount observed now. Mm-hmm. New data show the balance between the airborne and absorbed fraction of carbon dioxide has stayed approximately constant since 1850, despite emissions of CO2 having risen from 2 billion tons a year in 1850 to 35 billion ton, uh, tons a year now. This suggests that the terrestrial ecosystems and the oceans have a much greater capacity to absorb carbon dioxide than had been previously expected. But this would be good news. Get a gas, get a guzzler. Come on. Burn some stuff. The results run contrary to a significant body of recent research, which expects the capacity of terrestrial ecosystems and the oceans to absorb CO2 should start to diminish as CO2 emissions increase causing greenhouse gases to skyrocket. But Dr. Wolfgang Knorr at the University of Bristol found, in fact, the trend in the airborne fraction has been essentially zero. The strength of the new study, published in Geophysical Research Letters, is that it rests solely on measurements and statistical data, not on models. Is this good news for climate negotiations in Copenhagen? Not necessarily, says Knorr. Like all studies of this kind, there are uncertainties in the data. So rather than relying on nature to provide a free service soaking up our waste carbon, we need to ascertain why the proportion being absorbed has not changed. More studies. Another grant, please. Georgia Tech City and Regional Planning Professor Brian Stone is publishing a paper in Environmental Science and Technology that suggests policymakers need to address more than just greenhouse gas emissions. They need to address the influence of global deforestation and urbanization on climate change. And rising sea levels threaten to damage homes worth up to $10 billion Australian along the coast of Victoria, flooding the St. Kilda Shore, beautiful beach, much like the home of the homeless, and put key industries at risk by 2100, according to Australian government research. 45,000 homes in the state of Victoria, worth $10.3 billion, face inundation due to more extreme weather, particularly the combination of storm surges and rising sea levels. Well, I'll tell you what to do. Call the Army Corps of Engineers. They'll come over there and build something. Oh, yeah, they'll build something. They will build something. Thanks for listening, everybody. Now, of course, I have a few things to say, as I always do. I, I wrote them all down, and it, it, as I look at them, I realize I'm going to go in exactly the reverse order that I wrote them down. So let's see how much I, I stumble over this stuff. First of all, of course, I want to remind you that the iPhone and iPod Touch application is awesome. 
not only does it get bonus content delivered to it for every episode, you know, it costs two bucks once ever, and then you get bonus content for every episode, but it also just received a major update. And so now it has more features. You get access to the entire archives of the show, which you had before, but now you can actually mark certain episodes as favorites to make them easy to find and download them directly to your device so you can listen to them offline as well. Today's bonus content is a great video put out by Green.TV, who consistently puts out great videos, and it's it's one that it doesn't make much sense without the visuals, which is why it's in the bonus content, and it's just a great message of how people need to get together and speak basically truth to power to those, the men in suits, especially now as those men in suits are getting ready to get together and make a big decision in Copenhagen. Second of all, Copenhagen. I want to remind you again that the show is going to be off the internets for a couple of weeks and will return in late December due to the fact that I will actually be in Copenhagen. If you want to follow what I'm doing, head over to earthbeatradio.org. That's actually my boss's radio show. He and I are going over there to do some kind of daily, fast-paced interviews and reporting from the scene. You know, we, we don't know exactly what it's going to look or sound like yet, but he will be blogging along with the audio and video content that I'm able to produce, and we're looking to be a news source for the Copenhagen Conference with a perspective. Obviously, we're coming from the environmentalist, the liberal political perspective that you've come to know and love by listening to this show. It's the same idea with the Copenhagen Conference. So all of that happening at earthbeatradio.org. Just subscribe to the blog, their Facebook, their Twitter, and all that stuff, and that's where we'll be posting the material while I'm in Europe. Back on Best of the Left News, today you heard for the very first time uh, the new ad I put out for Groupon, and I usually don't talk about them at the end of the show, but I just want to mention this service I heard about from two separate friends who just volunteered the information because they loved it so much that they wanted to pass it on to everyone they knew because it's such a great service. And when I heard it and learned exactly how it worked, I thought, well, I have to tell my audience about it. This is insane. Everyone should be using this. It's it's really just the power of pure economics and harnessing the power of the internet to get groups of people together to get discounts. It, it's, it's like the economic win, 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 win all the way around. Businesses get more business, customers get deeper discounts. It, it's in, really just incredible. So, you know, I just know that you'll love it and pass it on to your friends because that's everyone's instinct. You think I shouldn't be the only one getting these discounts. All my friends need to know about this too. And now while you're at the website to click the Groupon link, the other totally, completely painless thing you can do that this idea was brought to me by a listener, just a completely awesome idea, is I've, I've placed a very simple Amazon.com search box on the website. And obviously it doesn't cost you anything. You don't have to send in a donation to support the show this way. If you're doing any kind of shopping at, of any kind, any time of the year, but obviously it's December, there's this inevitable shopping period coming up. Not even coming up, we're in the middle of it. If you just do your shopping on Amazon, if you were going to do that anyways, do your shopping on Amazon, but do it through my website, then the show gets a little bit of a commission from that and you support the show that way. It costs you absolutely nothing and we gain, again, a total win-win for everyone. So huge thanks to Ian who gave me that idea and I've implemented it on the website and it'll be up there forever now. So if you have any plans on doing shopping on Amazon, Go ahead and search for your products through my website and help support the show. Now, finally, I just want to continue to encourage you to keep voting over at Podcast Alley. We're gearing up again to uh, to take on the top 10 list at Podcast Alley. We only need, I don't know, it's like 200, 250 votes. Completely, do I mean, that's so doable, it's ridiculous. So be one of those 200 or 250 people. Head over to Podcast Alley and search for Best of the Left or just follow the link right on our website. Obviously, we make it really easy for you. Vote for the show this month and every month and get us up in the top 10. A new note on that, the Young Turks have actually reached out to me and said that they're going to get involved in the Podcast Alley funtivities. And they've asked that I help promote the fact that they're getting in on it. So while you're there voting for Best of the Left, 
go ahead and throw a vote towards the Young Turks as well. Okay, now absolutely, positively, finally, the last thing I'm going to say is that uh, I've heard from, from several of you that you you wish you had a physical address that you could send a donation to. And, and frankly, I mean, you could send a donation or anything, but I have a P.O. box and I've had it for a while and it's been posted on the website, but I've never felt the need to talk about it. It just never felt important enough to, uh, to get onto the show. But I just want to mention we do have a P.O. box and I, I will make an attempt to continue to mention it. So you can send donations, well wishes, uh, cards, presents, whatever you like, uh, you know, or nothing. It, it's just it's just there as an option to P.O. Box 3451, Washington, D.C., zip code 20010. So there you go. For anyone who's uh, looking for a physical address, now you got it. And if you need to look it up, P.O. Box address is listed on the donate page at the website. So I'm just going to thank uh, Daniel I, who signed up for his membership on August 21st and was you know, a great volunteer for the show, actually put in a lot of time helping out the show behind the scenes. And David R signed up on September 18th. David signed up for a full year of membership, so huge thanks to him. Of course, thanks to all of the members who helped keep the show going. The members reap the benefits of the Best of Left Raw feed in addition to knowing that they're keeping the show going. So they get all of the clips that end up in the show. About three quarters of the clips in that feed are in their original video format, which is great. And, of course, there's a bunch of bonus clips because not everything in the bonus feed ends up making it into the final show. So if you're interested, details on membership at the membership tab at bestofleft.com. So besides membership, of course, you can support the show just by telling lots of friends about it, as always, leaving five-star reviews in iTunes for the podcast and the application, of course, and voting every month at Podcast Alley. You can stay connected between shows by joining us at twitter.com slash bestoftheleft and facebook.com slash bestoftheleft, and links to the music and all the sources used for this show are always in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway and border, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been Best of the Left Podcast, delivered to you every Wednesday and every weekend. Thanks to the members and donors from bestoftheleft.com. Hi, my name is Mike. Can I have your ears for a real short rant? This message is totally unsolicited. In fact, the only way you could be hearing my message right now is because Jay heard this very same recording and gave me a little space. So, thanks, Jay. Hey, talk about penny-pinching in this economy. I've whittled down a normal middle-class existence to my current bare-bones income, and I do it on early Social Security retirement. That's 25% less than regular Social Security. $5 is a lot of money to me, but I consider it important enough to give those dollars to Jay every month to further his great program, the twice-weekly Best of the Left podcast. So if you could possibly squeeze a subscription into your budget, do it. Hey, if I can come up with a fiver every month, I think most people can. And if you can't, keep listening, do those free things that Jay asks you to do, and then subscribe when you can. Thanks.